Guardian Unlimited. Hello, assalamu alaikum and welcome to a festive edition of Islamophonic. We've got our streamers and poppers out because it's not just the Islamic New Year, it's also our first birthday. Yes, a year has passed since we started putting the mmm into Muslim. And to celebrate, we have a... <laughs> to celebrate, we have a bumper programme. Coming up, David Miliband, Hajj, Salafis and a whole host of other stuff. In the studio, we have writer and commentator Zia Sardar. Assalamu alaikum, Zia. What are your New Year's resolutions? My New Year's resolution, I think, is the same every year, to give up smoking cigars, and I singularly fail to do so. My problem is that when I sit down to write, I daily do need a cigar in my hand, and I write a lot. Now, you're going to be doing a lot of writing, so that means possibly a lot of smoking, because you've started an interesting well, project actually, for I The don't, Guardian. Uh, yes, apart from my usual writing, you know. I'm also blogging the Quran for The Guardian, which is a one-year project. And I think it's a challenging task. And so blogging the Quran, you read it and then you write about it? What your well, experiences I think were all, or are you translating yeah. it? First of all, I think I should make two or three confessions. One is that I am not your conventional blogger. In fact, I never blogged. The second thing is that I'm, I'm approaching the Quran as every man. Although I'm you know, an established Muslim thinker, I'm not a fully trained alim, somebody who has gone to a seminary. You know, to so you're not it. approaching it from a scholarly perspective? I am approaching it from a certain scholarly perspective, but not from conventional conservative Muslim scholarly perspective, you see what I mean. And my Arabic is not very good either, even though I lived in Saudi Arabia for five years during the 70s. Will you be reading it in English then? So this is very much an exercise in English. But the thing with the Quran is that Quran has a finite number of original words in it, you know, words like Allah, you know, Rahman, Rahim. And for me, and I think for most of Muslims, the Quran actually involves a struggle with trying to understand these words. And what I'm trying to do is to bring out two or three contexts. Muslims believe the Quran is eternal, but it has two or three contexts which are very, very important. One is the context of the time during which it was revealed. And I think we need to take that time and place into account. And the second context, of course, has to be the life of the Prophet himself. The Quran is a commentary on the life of the Prophet. So on many occasions, it is actually commenting on what the Prophet is doing. And sometimes it may be advising the Prophet not to do this, but to do that. So you need to know something about the life of the Prophet and what is going on when a particular revelation is being revealed. And third, of course, is the context of our own time. We mm. can only approach the Quran from our own perspective, from the reality that we face in everyday life. So what I'm trying to do is to bring out these three contexts. You've only just started, but what's the response been like so far? Oh, the response has been very good. I mean, we had an overwhelming contribution. I mean, there are a huge number of bloggers out there. I mean, they're, they're, it seems to me that some people just sit there all day and just blog. <laughs> but some interesting questions have been asked, which I have attempted to answer. It is an interactive exercise. So I suspect that my readers will not allow me to get away with everything I say, which is exactly what I like. This is very much an exercise in somewhat rational understanding of the Quran. It is a sacred text. Yes, we approach the Quran as Muslims with humility and respect. But at the same time, the Quran itself asks us to challenge it. I mean, it's full of questions. And therefore, I'm going to be asking lots of questions myself. I will pick out certain themes in the Quran. What is belief? What is God? What is prophethood? And after the themes, I will pick up certain subjects which are of contemporary relevance. Jihad. Jihad comes to mind. Jihad, women, yeah. you know, uh, apostasy. I mean, there's so many topics. And if my readers would like to suggest certain things, I will, you know, pick those subjects up as well and try and, and do my best. That sounds really good. We will make sure that we include a link to the Blogging the Quran site on our Islamophonic page. 
We didn't have a December programme. We did record one, but we had chronic technological problems. If we'd put out the Christmas show, you'd have heard me talk about my impending trip to Saudi to report on the Hajj and how The Guardian were going to big it up on the paper, which they did. So thank you for that, guys. I also said for our January show we'd have a Hudge montage, a Hudge-tage, because everybody needs a montage, and it would feature some of the people I met. Here they are talking about their experiences. My name is Amr Rashid and I'm from Bradford. I'm 17 years old. How many times have you done Hajj? Mashallah, five times. It's going to be my fifth time now. So you're 17 and you've done it five times. Why do you keep coming back? Because this is the only place in the world where I find peace. And also, I see different, uh, many Muslims of the world. I think it's the only religion with many, many different Muslims from around the world. The different like countries like um, Europe, Italy, Turkey, America, Australia. I think it's really nice to see different people amongst my own religion. My name is Bahadur Saman. I'm from in Indonesia. Is this your first Hajj? Yes, this, this is my first time to come to the Makkah. Are you enjoying Makkah? Yeah, I very enjoy it. Very, very nice. Indonesia has many, many Muslims. Oh, yeah. Maybe 200 million. If I can, I will come again and again. Inshallah. Inshallah, inshallah. Comment t'appelles-tu? Uh, Monsieur Safsafa. Tu viens-tu? <laughs> non, pas le prévu en français, non, je, je, je viens de l'Algérie. Et vous êtes musulmane Oui, bien sûr, je suis musulmane, je viens ici pratiquer euh, le hajj. Ouais. <laughs> que pensez-vous de Makkah et votre musulmane frère Alhamdulillah, tout musulmane. I'm Hassan Ousmane from Nigeria. How many times have you performed hajj This is my second time. What's it like? Well, it's a different experience. I came about 12 years ago and this is a lot more organized, much better facilities. So all around, I think, much, much better than the first time I came here. Because it's the second time, do you feel that you know more? How prepared were you the first time? I think I'm a lot more mature now. I came here when I was about 28, 27 years old. It's like a, another tourist package. But this time around, it's a lot more spiritual. It's a lot deeper. I, think I can see a lot more meaning in what I'm doing. So it's a lot more satisfying, definitely. And how is the Islam that you practice here in Makkah different to what you do back home? Well, the only difference that I noticed is it's a physical thing. You look around, there's a lot more women that are covered up compared to, say, back home in Nigeria. But other than that, I think in terms of the practice, exactly the same thing I'm experiencing back home in Nigeria. Do you have the same level of religious observance? A lot more over here compared to back home. There's nothing else you're doing apart from just ibadah. There are a lot more distractions back home. It's not that easy, you know, things like praying on time and so on. Uh, over here you do that. And what's the vibe in Makkah? There's a communal feeling. And everybody I meet is so welcoming and so inviting. All of us are making conscious efforts not to get upset by little things, you know, ordinary things that would get you really worked up. There's a lot more sense of friendship. Who are you and where are you from? Hamza Yusuf from Glasgow. Work in Scottish Parliament and here on Hajj with my friends. How's it been so far? Yeah, alhamdulillah. It's uh, praise be to God. It's been quite difficult at some parts, but it's not been uh, it's not the rituals that have been testing, but the people and having to cope with it. And it's been tiring, shattering actually. Um, I think I much prefer working than uh, having to do this every day. What do you hope to take back to Scotland with you? Appreciation. <laughs> no, appreciation of discipline uh, as well as a complete bald head but to definitely an appreciation of what we have, thankfulness. And to be honest, I never thought I'd say this, but thankfulness of some British values like queuing up and appreciation, also a real spiritually uh, uplifting experience. What's your name and where are you from? Assalamualaikum, my name is Ahmed Sheikh. I'm from Glasgow. What's the best thing about being on Hajj? Obviously seeing the Kaaba, but other than that, it's seeing the whole Ummah effectively, people from all around the world. That's one thing that I really enjoy. 
What would be your top Hudge tip for people who are thinking of coming next year? Not to overexert yourself at the beginning. It's not easy, you've got lots of things to do. What's your name and where are you from? My name is Ahmad Mahmoud, I'm from Glasgow. Do you think this is the most important thing you'll do in your life? Yeah, definitely the decision to come was one where I was reflecting on the fact that this is so far going to be the most important thing that I have done in my life. And Islam does say that Hajj is the, the most important thing you can do, so yeah, it, it will be. Now your family did it last year, what did they tell you about it? No, your family, <laughs> you all look the same, you're all bald, what am I supposed to do about that? Sorry. What's it, what's it like being part of such a big Muslim community? I mean, there are four million Muslims here, there are two billion Muslims in the world. It's amazing how it unites us with each other. I mean, quite literally, you could go up to a brother you've never met before in your life, sit down, talk with him, share food with him, you know, spend time with him. And Alhamdulillah, you would have so much that you would connect on with each other. You could be of different nationalities, completely different backgrounds, but just Islam unites you in that sense. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, I think. What's been the hardest thing so far, physically or spiritually? I think physically it's definitely been adjusting to the sheer volume of people here. You know, taking half an hour to travel all of 100 metres because there's that vol uh, people here. Spiritually, I think the tests are still to come, with the days of Hajj still to come. But seeing the Kaaba, being in the Haram is testing on you in a sense, yeah. What do you miss about home, if anything? Mum's parote. <laughs> Fried Mars bar. A bigger bed. <laughs> do you think you'll come back and do it again? Definitely, if God wills. Inshallah, if God wills, yeah. Alhamdulillah, I would love to come back. Sia, have you done Hajj? Five Hajjs. Mashallah. Uh, during the 70s, I actually worked at the Hajj Research Centre. Oh yeah, in, for five years. Uh, they were normal kind of pilgrimage, but they were also research exercises. We were working on the dynamics of Hajj, how do you accommodate so many people, all, what sort of pollution they produce, what effect does it have on the ecology and the geology of the city, and how do you move all these people from one ritual point to another point. With great difficulty, With I can tell difficulty. you. <laughs> in fact, one of my Hajj, which is the last Hajj that I did, I walked from Jeddah to Makkah with a donkey. In fact, it was a pretty unruly donkey who turned out to be a, who turned out to be a homosexual donkey, as we discovered. Uh, and, uh, there are no homosexual donkeys in Islam. <laughs> no, this particular donkey was definitely homosexual, as we discovered. And he and a friend of mine, who was also a researcher, Zafar Malik, and we were trying to trace the old caravan routes. In olden days, people used to go to Hajj on caravan routes, and these were like huge cities on the move, coming from Cairo, one from Yemen, from Sana'a, from Damascus, and they'd be like huge cities on the move. And we were trying to trace the route from Jeddah to Makkah. But of course, these caravan routes have disappeared. Mm. So in fact, a lot of our journey was over mountains, over a donkey who we call Cengiz, after Cengiz Khan, because of his temper. And during one part of the journey, he ran off with another donkey. Uh, he left you? He left us and ran off with another he donkey. He you? And ran off with another donkey. And then somebody told us that, in fact, he ran off with a, with a male donkey, and he was a male as well. So that's how we discovered he was He was there. a homosexual donkey. For a considerable amount of the journey, we carried the luggage ourselves. But first of all, Hajj is essentially a spiritual exercise. The word Hajj means effort. So to go to Hajj, you need to actually put a great deal of effort. Somebody in your package mentioned, you know, the last time I came here, it was like a tourist exercise. Now, that's the danger. And Hajj is not he, something... I think what Hajj, he meant was that me, he, me, he was me. not spiritually prepared and yeah. he just kind of yeah. came uh, along. To some extent, mm. the Hajj has been downgraded to a tourist exercise. It is not something that you go every year. It is a lifetime's experience. I think young people should go to Hajj once, but then you should go to Hajj when you are in, in your middle age. Now, the number of reasons why you should try and not go to Hajj every year. So you last Only went to Hajj in the Hajj. 70s? Yeah. No, so I you haven't... No, I've, I've been to a number of Umrahs. Right, okay. I've been to a number of Umrahs. I know Saudi Arabia very well. 
But the point I'm making is this. First of all, it's a spiritual exercise and should be undertaken as a spiritual exercise, which requires a great deal of effort. So my recommendation when you go to Hajj is to walk everywhere. You know, the greatest problem in the Hajj environment is the car. Unless, of course, you are old and infirm. That's a different thing. Yeah. The other thing is that Makkah, Muna, Muzdalafa, Arafat, that area can only take the burden of so many people. And that's why the Hajj has a quota system. So if you're going regularly mm. on a quota basis, you are denying somebody else. The Hajj environment actually can only take comfortably two million people. Right? Well, and this year, towards the end of the Hajj, I mean, they said, the Hajj, yeah, yeah, they said three million, three million and you can add another million on top of that because there were plenty of people who weren't there with official paperwork. Yeah, And it uh, just happens every year. It happens every year, of course. Of but course. I want, I want to move on and talk about the physical changes that you talked about. I mean, yeah. you said that you go back every four or five years. Yeah. One of the things that I wasn't expecting to see was how much Western presence there was. Absolutely. The, Starbucks, uh, Pizza Hut, the, the, KFC. The real, the real, the real tragedy. Not just that, but also how, I mean, you've got these like really glossy shopping malls that wouldn't look out of place in Dubai and they're selling Topshop and Debenhams the, the, and Next and Accessorize. The real and tragedy it's aimed is that, at the kind of more Western and more affluent pilgrimage. And of course, you're getting luxury high-rise apartments. I met a woman who had spent £5,000 on her Hajj and she's staying in these amazing skyscrapers that are directly... So, so she's not having any spiritual experience. No, the she whole is having a spiritual is, experience. The whole, no, the whole point is you do need to live rough to have, have Hajj. You're, so you're annihilating your ego. when I take my mum, inshallah, later this year, yeah. that even though she's asthmatic and she can't walk very quickly, we should rough it and slum it just to prove a point. Uh, You're saying no, that I shouldn't because, allow my mum to sleep in a bed with like a no, Western because, toilet. Because your mother is old and has a, has a medical problem. I don't she, want to have to, to she, sit on a she, bus for four she, hours to get to the hurdle. She, she should be, you know, you, you have to look after her. Yeah, and, 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 and This and, woman and was ma- with her mum as well. It was ma- her first time. Ma- make sure that she's, she's comf- comfortable enough, etc., etc. But at the end of the day... Mm. Your mother still has to perform the tawaf, oh, which will, is incredible. Inshallah, she will. She still has to stand at, at Wakuf in Arafat. Still has to run from uh, uh, Ara- Arafat to Muzdalafa. My right. mom hasn't run for anything yeah. in a long time. I mean, you know, the great exodus, yeah. in a sense. Okay, well, presumably you agree with the findings of Dr. Irfan al-Alawi. He's from the Islamic Heritage Foundation. He says that for decades, Saudi authorities have been bulldozing historical sites of interest to make way for these apartments, these high-rises and these shopping malls. And his latest revelation is that the Zamzam water that people are lugging back in their 10-litre jerry cans isn't Zamzam water anymore. Most of the Muslim world does not know that this Abrahamic well was disturbed some 11 years ago, and it's at a very critical stage from disappearing altogether. 11 years ago, when the well was damaged from the construction around the Grand Mosque, the water disappeared underground until it was brought back. And now it's no longer pure Zamzam water, as it has to go through many stages of filtration, where before there was no need. The Zamzam spring has run uninterrupted for some 4,000 years, from the time of the prophet Abraham and his son Ishmael. The 31-metre, 105-foot-deep source is located inside the Grand Mosque complex and its water is used to wash the Holy Kaaba ahead of the annual pilgrimage. The religious zealots of Wahhabism do not cherish sacred sites as they believe pilgrimage to such places encourages heretical and idolatrous worship. The Saudi religious authorities have been engaged in wholesale destruction of historical places for decades now. Uh, That was not the voice of Dr. Al-Alawi. That was, in fact, the voice of my producer, Matt Haywood. If you want to learn more about Dr. Al-Alawi's investigations, we'll be uploading his work onto the Islamophonic page. So, technically, these sites are not part of the Hajj and they hold no spiritual or religious significance. 
No, they do. They do? Of course. I mean, Spiritually? Yeah, I mean, the Prophet walked on the streets of Mecca. He's on, talking on the, about, the, I mean, the, he's the, referring the to sort of like the birthplaces and graves. and. No, I mean, I, I, I totally and utterly agree with, with, with Dr. Rauf. For the last 30, 40 years, the Saudis have systematically destroyed the Hajj environment. They have totally bulldozed history. I mean, there is no culture property. If you enter Mecca, there's no spiritual feeling. It's only when you go to the Haram and you're standing in front of the Kaaba, then it really hits you that you are in a, in a totally different space. Oh, the outside. rest of the time, it just feels like a bun fight. Precisely. But I think we ought to, Muslims everywhere, stand up and say that the Hajj environment mm. is sacred and you, you cannot go on demolishing it. You, you cannot put escalators there, lifts mm. in, in the Holy Mosque. I mean, he says that if the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem was destroyed, there'd be a bloodbath. But he says Muslims just don't seem to be no. bothered about what's happening in, in, in Makkah or, or, or Medina. I have actually witnessed when bulldozers came mm. and demolished large chunks of Medina and turned it flat. Mm. There's lots of shaded area. Where I mean, the Saudis say down. that they're investing billions of pounds yeah. in the preservation and maintenance because are, there's a lot of wear and tear involved. Um, and they also say there's no proof that these sites are actually I'm defending the Saudis. I'm not defending the Saudis. No, no, please. Do somebody has to, <laughs> and I think you probably are doing a reasonably good job. Oh, <laughs> but they're saying we're doing our bit to protect. There is the no doubt. Sites. There's no doubt that the Saudis spend billions. Mm. All the solutions mm. are high technology solutions, yep. which are basically designed for American cities, mm. right? And they actually make the problem worse rather than better. Doctor Al Alawi lays the blame for this destruction on the ruling Wahhabi elite. But who are these Wahhabis and why do they get the blame for everything? Try as I might, I couldn't find any Wahhabis in Britain, but I did find some Salafis in Birmingham, no less. Here's Abu Khadida, who runs a Salafi bookstore in Small Heath, talking about Salafism, Wahhabism and suicide bombings. Salafism is really an anglo-sized version of the word Salafiyya, which is basically those individuals or a methodology that follows the way of the Prophet and his disciples. And the thing that distinguishes them from other groups is the Salafis do not set up an individual figure or a sheikh or a scholar to blindly follow. The Salafis basically say that you must follow the textual evidences of the Qur'an, the statements of the Prophet, peace be upon him, his disciples and the way that they built their society and this is what the Salafis call to the issue of the disciples. This is the most distinguishing factor between Salafis and every other faction amongst the Muslims. So it's a very back-to-basics approach. Salafis are very puritanical in their approach. They believe that you should go back to the text of the Qur'an and the Sunnah in your doctrine. And in that manner, we'll find the solutions to modern-day issues and problems. Some people would say, do you have answers to modern-day questions such as fertility and DNA and so on and so forth? And the answer is yes, there are answers amongst the Salafis because if a person looks at the religion in that fashion, then it solves many of the problems that many of the Muslims are facing in our time. Issues such as suicide bombings, such as terrorism, so-called jihad, Islam and politics, the woman and Islam. The Salafi will say, this is how it was in the time of the Prophet and this is how we should practice it today in light of the world in its contemporary form. Now you just mentioned suicide bombings, terrorism and jihad and these are linked with more purist interpretations of Islam. The actual notion itself that modern-day terrorism or modern-day jihadist ideologies hark back to a time of puritanical Islam or pure Islam, meaning 14 centuries ago, I would contend with. In reality, it's the opposite. The modern-day jihadist movement, terrorist movement and suicide ideology is in fact a modern-day approach. 
if you look towards the texts of the Quran and the Sunnah, you will not find any example of any act of suicide. Rather, it was condemned in that time. Likewise, the modern-day jihadist approach, which is basically an, a top-down approach, is something which is alien to Islam. When the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, started calling the people to Islam, he began with his family members and the people in his own society. So it wasn't an approach that begins with pulling down the tyrannical rulers and then changing the whole society top down. No, rather it begins from the ground and works its way up. I mean, no doubt the likes of Khomeini and the likes of Bin Laden and the likes of these types of individuals do make a claim to puritanical Islam, claim that it's founded in the Quran and the prophetic tradition. But in reality, the modern day jihadist movement has got nothing to do with Islam and nothing to do with what the Prophet Muhammad came with. Explain the relationship between Salafism and Wahhabism. Those people who have contentions with the Salafis will say Salafis are Wahhabis. It's a term to put down the Salafis. So we don't accept the term Wahhabi, and it's only used by the adversaries of Islam. Why do you think they have the reputation that they do, though? Salafism, and particularly Wahhabism, has become a dirty word. Do you think it's more to do with the way it's implemented in countries like Saudi Arabia, for example? No, I don't think that it's got anything to do with Saudi Arabia or any of those Gulf countries. It's because the terrorists themselves try to jump on the bandwagon of Salafia. Which reminds me of a beautiful statement Ibn al-Qayyim said that changing the name of something does not change its reality. So even if you go blue in the face with shouting and claiming that you are Sunni, but you don't adhere to those three principles, the Qur'an, the Sunnah and the way of the disciples of the Prophet Muhammad, then you are neither Salafi nor Sunni, regardless of how hard you beat your chest. Jazakallah. He sounds perfectly reasonable. What's wrong with following the example of the Prophet Muhammad Most Muslims will say that. In fact, Islam consists of reading the Quran, following the examples of the Prophet. And some Muslims will say that we should also follow the, the followers of the Prophet. There are two or three things that I think we need to point out here. One, we shouldn't demonize any groups, okay. whether they are Salafis, Wahhabis, mm. or, 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 or whatever, right? Because a lot of them are individuals and they're very pious, very humane individuals. We should criticize their ideas. Now, the problem with Salafism is that it's a very puritanical outlook. He himself uses the word puritanical. And the outlook is based on construction of a particular history. I mean, they want to go back and reconstruct the history of the Prophet in a very romantic way. And then they proceed to tell the others that that is the only pure way. Mm. So it's quite authoritarian and, in fact, a very arrogant attitude. The life of the Prophet is not a one-dimensional thing. A lot of the things he did had context. I mean, for example, the Prophet had a beard. Well, if blades were available, then, then he would have shaved. You know, I mean, we know that, in fact, he really looked after himself physically. There was a great deal of emphasis on presentation, on, on cleanliness. He rode camels because that was the major transport. So a lot of the examples of the Prophet should be seen in the context. They should be but, confined to history. So yeah, just but, because but he rode a camel, it doesn't mean we should ride we a camel. Should ride a camel. Okay. Just, just because he dressed in a particular way, in a, in a desert environment, yeah. does, doesn't mean we should, we should dress exactly the same if we are living in a country that's, that is very very and snowing. And yes, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, this is it's it's not, totally abs- absurd. Yeah. There are certain aspects of the life of the Prophet which are universal. For example... Mm. When the Prophet goes back to Mecca, he is faced with all the people who persecuted him for years and years. And he asks, what should I do with you? So he answers himself, I forgive you. Now, this incredible notion of forgiveness is central to the life of the Prophet. And this is the universal principle. There's a lot of self-righteousness and arrogance, which to me is quite dangerous. And I think but that's you don't why need to be Salafi to be an arrogant Muslim. No, they, you, you find them everywhere. 
You do? Yeah, <laughs> you find them everywhere, particularly in Britain. Okay. Now, you wouldn't think that a Salafi and David Miliband would have something in common, but they both dislike suicide bombings. The Foreign Secretary was in fine fettle when he had an audience with young Muslims at the House of Commons to talk about Pakistan, Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. Here he is talking about why they refused to engage with Hamas, even though they had secured a victory in the elections. The National Unity Government, when it was formed in the Gaza Strip, we engaged with all those people, and I use the word deliberately, not parties, but people, whatever their party, who were committed and showed themselves either through their actions or words to be committed to peaceful processes. And that is not a very high bar to set for working with people. But that's what we did. And I would say about the Hamas, in the end, President Abbas of Palestine came to see me in uh, December and came to meet the Prime Minister. And I would cue you to see what he's saying about the basis on which reconciliation should be achieved amongst the Palestinian people between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. I mean, I believe that Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, is a friend of all those who are seeking stability and justice in the Middle East. So in that sense, he's my friend. And he says, look, Hamas did kill 129 people in Gaza in June. They have tried to mount a military coup. That is not the basis on which the Palestinian people can find a way to achieve their statehood. And he says to me, I want to lead reconciliation amongst Palestinians, and you've got to recognise that I am the elected leader of all the Palestinian people as their president. Here he is talking about the two-state solution. I think I would say that, first of all, it's not about dividing Israel. I mean, in a way, it's slightly paradoxical me saying this to you, but you wouldn't want to describe the whole of uh, the area that we're talking about for a Palestinian state as being part of, quote-unquote, Israel. There are people who believe in a greater Israel. I assume you're not one of them. <laughs> Secondly, the, uh, so it's not about dividing Israel. Secondly, there's flashpoints now about a border that we know exists because we've talked about it in terms of the 1967 lines and there are plenty of, to use your word, flashpoints around it. And I think the flashpoints of not having proper demarcation are greater than the flashpoints that might exist afterwards. Third point, I think there's widespread commitment to ensure that a new Palestinian state is not a source of new violence but is actually a a push against it. And one of the most remarkable meetings I went to was in December where NATO foreign ministers hosted a meeting with Arab and Israeli foreign ministers. And you'd think, you know, hasn't the Middle East got enough problems without NATO getting involved? But actually, it reflected the seriousness on all sides of thinking about what would a peaceful Palestinian state and how would a demilitarized Palestinian state work, that they were looking at all sorts of options for ensuring that it was able to maintain its borders in a situation of peacefulness. And I think that in this case, it's right to seek the two-state solution. And in a very special terror update, the Foreign Secretary... Update. On the um, cause of terrorism, you see, I wish in a way it was so easy to say that if there hadn't been a war in Iraq, Britain wouldn't be subject to terrorism. In a way, it would be a liberation. If that was the case, it would make life much easier. But I am much affected that in 2001, a young man was arrested in Birmingham who wanted to blow himself up and blow up a lot of people in Birmingham, long before the Iraq war, as you know. And I say that in a spirit of genuine inquiry about what motivates someone to hate their own country in that sort of way. I'm not asking anyone to put to one side the strongly held views they have about what's gone wrong in Iraq, the things that they don't agree with, the things they think have gone wrong. We know that the al-Qaeda narrative strings together a series of alleged humiliations of Muslims around the world and weaves them into a story of which Iraq is a part to try to allege that there is a clash of civilizations. That is the narrative that is peddled. 
Nothing is ever mentioned about Bosnia or other areas where intervention has actually been tried to protect Muslims. But there's a series of humiliations alleged and otherwise that are part of the narrative. And, I, and there is a lot of questioning that goes on about it because any, anyone who looks at the testimonies of those who have been suicide bombers on 7-7 or elsewhere realizes that they don't conform to the easy stereotypes of who a suicide bomber might be. It's lazy and too easy to believe that degree of piety is an indicator of openness to being seduced into terrorist networks. One hears talk about fundamentalism, for example, which almost says the more Muslim you are, the greater you are likely you are to be a candidate to become a terrorist, which is a, a very dangerous and very wrong equation to make. Terror Update. That was our terror update from Foreign Secretary David Miliband. The general consensus from the audience was that David Miliband's a very good politician. He didn't really answer any questions. Um, from what you heard, do you think he said anything new, anything different? Well, I, I mean, I think that the, we should appreciate and acknowledge the fact that the, that the job of a politician is to avoid answering questions. So from that point of view, David Miliband was, was, was very good. But it's not just a question of avoiding questions. You need to avoid them in such a way that you sound rational and mm. reasonable and, and sensible, which is exactly what he did. I mean, it is incredible. Of all the evidence that exists to say that the British foreign policy has no impact on suicide bombing, I find that dumbfounding. When the government's own reports, one report after another, terrorism has actually increased mm. since the Iraq war, since the invasion of Afghanistan. There were no suicide bombings in Pakistan ever in the history of Pakistan. I think that whatever Salafi brother said is, is absolutely true. I mean, there's no history of that kind of suicide assassination. Mm. It's got nothing to do with Islam. Right? But nowadays, we find suicide bombing occurring in Pakistan almost almost on a weekly basis, since the invasion of Afghanistan and since what has happened in Iraq, there is a direct cause and effect there. Mm. I mean, he said it would almost be liberating if yeah. suicide bombers were blowing themselves up because of foreign policy. Yeah. There's another point. Nobody who loves their country would want to see it hurt. The problem is many young Muslims mm. who are born and bred here yep. do not regard Britain as, as their, their country. country. Now, you need to address that problem. There are reasons why they don't regard Britain as their country. The way they are treated, the way they are marginalized, the way they are demonized. You know, you have a whole communities that are isolated and then you blame the victim, say these people want to be segregated. Well, nobody wants to be segregated. Nobody wants to live in a slum. I mean, would you want to live in a slum? Everybody would be allowed to work. Everybody wants to get out of a slum. Mm. Uh, so in a sense, there's a lot of blaming the victim here. The truth is, if two or three things happened, mm. not just suicide bombing, but a great deal of violence in the Muslim world will disappear. One, Britain and America changed their foreign policy, acknowledged what they have done in Iraq, and left Iraq to the Iraqis. And they did something similar in Afghanistan. Second, there was a proper solution to the Palestine problem. Mm. Now, you're not going to have a solution to the Palestine problems unless you talk to all the Palestinians. And the Hamas are a large chunk of the Palestinians. Now, look at the hypocrisy of our foreign policy. Democracy for this group of people is fine, mm. but democracy for that group is not fine because that group actually is anti-West. Well, if democracy is fine for one group, it is fine for all groups. And Hamas have, have won an election, full stop. Now, I do understand the problems of negotiating with them because Hamas have a very anti-Israel, non-negotiating stance. But I feel that when you engage with certain people, they do transform. So Hamas are as open to change as the West Bank. And I think there cannot really be a genuine solution to the Palestinian problems without engaging with all groups. Let the Palestinians give them their state and let them decide how they want to run it. Zia, thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
But to prove that we can all get along, have a listen to this. With me in the studio this month are the award-winning author and columnist Howard Jacobson. Welcome. And the critic and broadcaster Hepzibah Anderson. Welcome to you both. Uh, Howard, are you feeling very Jewish today? I'm feeling very Jewish every day. It's a blessing. You wake up and you think, yippee. I wake up and say how glad I am that I'm a Jew. I do, actually. Some days I do. I do actually think I bound into the world and think, here we go again. Another day of disputatiousness, another day of anxiety, another day of feeling good about myself. It's OK. That's it's why good. we got it's you good, in. Big Jew. Exactly. And Hepzibah, how are you, are you feeling particularly hiney today? I am feeling extra hiney, having got very lost in South London on my way here. And, and I felt like I was in foreign land. That was a clip from Sounds Jewish, the new podcast emerging from the loins of The Guardian and the Jewish Community Centre. With me in the studio is the presenter of Sounds Jewish, Jason Solomon. Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good day. <laughs> um, now, we've got Islamophonic because Muslims have suicide bombers. So what's your excuse? <laughs> we needed it because, frankly, the, 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 the problems of the world weigh heavy on our shoulders. and We need some forum to discuss them and share them. Uh, we need a place to what I call kvetch. Uh, and this is, the, <laughs> this, is the, this is the correct place to cyber kvetch, I okay. feel. <laughs> now, what's the best thing about being Jewish? The best thing about being Jewish is that you have a Jewish mother who then gives you lots of food, lots of love and lots of guilt. So it, you, you are Jewish because you have a Jewish mother. And it's kind of important. Um, I've married actually a non-Jewish woman. So my child might actually not have a Jewish mother, but she's, get, <laughs> she's getting the hang of it very, very quickly. So I think it, it, these days, you know, it, it, it's, it's more a feeling that can be transmitted from a kind of cultural baggage sort of place. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be giving that baggage like some kind of Ryanair handler. Can you be Jewish without being Jewish? I think you can be, yes. I think it's a state of mind. I think it's a state of culture. You can be sympathetically Jewish. I think you can be osmosically Jewish. I don't think you can become Jewish if you don't really, if you just go out and get a bagel every now and then from Brick Lane. I think you have to kind of, you know, actually kind of live with a Jew and kind of feel some of the the kind of weight that Jews feel. You need to feel a kind of cultural cringe uh, when a Jew is in the news Mm. uh, for bad things. David Abrahams. Yes, David Abrahams. And you need to feel (laughs) pride when you see a Woody Allen film or a Seinfeld thing and you need to feel pride. Yeah, he's one of ours. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Now, what can Muslims learn from Jews? Because you're just a lot cooler than we are. We just blow you stuff think? up. Yeah. I mean, it's like... You can't say that. <laughs> yes, I can. I can't say that. No, you can't say that, yeah, but I can right. say that. I mean, it, I mean, there aren't that many of you in Britain. I mean, even a sort of generous estimate, there's only 300,000. Yeah, that's but good. But you're, you're everywhere, you know, public life, arts and culture, entertainment, sports, I think, politics. I think there's a very much a work ethic that is shared between the two minorities there. I think you're, you're there, you've got that, we've given you that, you can have it. Uh, take it and run Thanks. with it. Uh, I think that I think that we, we start off because we 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 don't have the, the necessarily an exotic look. We have a kind of Semitic look, but we can kind of blend in occasionally mm. and take a while for people to suss us out. Mm. We we kept our heads down for a very long time though. The thing with Anglo Jews is we're not kind of that out yet. In fact, sounds Jewish is quite a brave step yeah. really for kind of. I mean, it, it wasn't a big guess for them to work out that I was Jewish, but there is a kind of thing <laughs> that my my parents sort of say don't don't, don't make a big Jewish. thing of it. Don't yeah. be too Jewish, they'll they'll take away all your money and they'll invade you, and that that, that kind of spectre of the Holocaust kind of runs, you know, runs heavy. And maybe what Muslims can learn from Jews uh, is persecution and Holocaust. That's where we we kind of have used it sympathetically and as a as a spur, kind of stops us ever wanting to go there again and try and make it impossible for anyone to do that to us again. 
What kind of Jewish fabulousness have you got coming up on future programmes? Well, on the future programmes? The fabulousness. <laughs> have you got a future programme? Yeah, we have got a future. We're not like you, one year old. Muzzle tov to you. Oh, mashallah, thank you. Jazakallah. Yeah, well, inshallah, we'll get to uh, a year old as well. In that, there is so much scope for fabulousness. It is wonderful. As you say, you know, we had Howard Jacobs from last time. There's people kind of come from every walk of life. So there's politics, there's film. There's... Any celebrities? Uh, we have got some celebrity celebrities. Jews. We will have celebrities. Are you going to get Larry Jews. David in? No, oh, God. I, oh, inshallah. We don't have anybody like Larry David. You don't? No. What about Omid Jalili? He's not Muslim, he's Baha'i. Is he? <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry. because he's got a funny name when he talks about terrorism. I, I, he talks about it. I, th- I thought he talked about him being his, Maybe he's a sympathetic Muslim. <laughs> Jason, it's been lovely having you. Thank I'm you so for pleased. coming in. I'm so honoured to be here on your first birthday. I wish you many, many uh, more birthdays uh, here at Islamophonic. It's all Abrahamic. You've been listening to Islamophonic. It was presented by me, Riaz Atbat, and produced by Matt Hayward. Our studio guests were Zia Sardar and Jason Solomons. Until next month, stay halal and jazakallah for listening. Guardian Unlimited.